Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm talking to Daniel Gottlieb from LSE, and we will be talking about his paper, Labs-Based Insurance. Daniel, could you briefly explain what this paper is about? Hi, Jonas. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It's an enormous pleasure to be here. So this is a paper where we study the life insurance market. And if you think about it, buying life insurance is one of the greatest gestures one can make to their loved ones. So you set aside money that you could be using during your lifetime, and it provides for your uh, heirs in case you die. And life insurance can be bought either directly or through your employer. And these are very different kinds of policies. So if you get insurance, life insurance through your employer, those are usually much smaller policies, and those are policies that are non-portable. So if you lose your job or if you uh, decide to leave, then you lose their policy. So what we study is not that. We study the individual market which are policies that you buy directly. And this is a huge market. So about 70% of uh, American families own life insurance. But uh, what we found to be a surprising fact is that the heirs of most people who buy life insurance will never actually collect on their policies. And that's not because people are lucky enough to outlive their policy expiration. It is because most policies lapse before they expire. So let me try to explain what that means. So typically, there are two general types of life insurance policies that you can buy in this market. There are the term policies and the permanent policy. So a term policy is what most economists would think of as a typical policy. So these are policies that last a fixed duration. So for example, you can go out there and buy a $500,000 20-year term policy. That means that you have a policy that pays a death benefit of $500,000 if you die within 20 years of purchasing. On the other hand, you have the permanent policy. And the idea of the permanent policy is that it would pay a death benefit regardless of when you die. In fact, that's not exactly true because for most policies, if you were to make it to 121 years old, then the policy pays when you turn 121. But you know, for most people, this is just a technical issue. And because the policy is not supposed to expire, then for the same $500,000 death benefit, that policy is more expensive. But we could talk about these differences between policies, but the fact is that for most people, these distinctions don't matter very much. Uh, and that's because uh, regardless of the policy, most people lapse on their or terminate their policies before, way before the expiration. So with a term policy, that's remember, that's a policy that lasts for a fixed duration. If you stop making your payment, the, the policy automatically stops. So you can just walk away and the policy just stops protecting you. And in most states, uh, if you miss a payment, if you're late for 30 or 31 days, then uh, your policy, your term policy automatically expires. With the permanent policy, because it's more expensive, then the insurer might owe you a payment in case you cancel the policy. So if you stop making a payment or if you contact them and you say you don't want it anymore, then they might be forced to pay you a surrender fee. And what we find is that, what we found is that, well, lapsing is extremely expensive. So for example, suppose you're, let's say you're a 35 year old non-smoker and you want to buy a $500,000 policy. So we looked at uh, all of those policies being offered, for example, in the state of California. And if you buy a, say a 20 year term policy, that would cost you about $230 a year. So every year you pay about $230 for the next 20 years to be covered. If you instead bought the same policy that covered you only for 10 years, 
then you'd pay $155. So that's $75 less per year. So what that means is that if you bought a 20-year policy, but you stopped after 10 years, you'd have spent uh, $75 a year more, so $750 total than if you had bought a 10-year policy from the start. Right. So and that's that's not specific to this policy. That's very common. So if you buy a long policy and you stop in the middle, that is very expensive. And in fact, we estimate that if everyone who bought a policy decided not to last, so they all paid until either they died or the policy expired, almost all of their life insurance companies would eventually run out of business holding the current policies fixed. So, so that's a lot of laps. That's what, we, what the name of this paper comes from, right? So that's lap space price. So more than half of the policies, regardless of whether we're talking about term or permanent, they lapse within 10 years. About 30% lapse in the first three years alone. And if you look at only the permanent policies, remember those are policies that are not meant to expire. So only to people who are 65 year olds, uh, about one quarter of them only will pay a, make a payment. So three quarters will never will be uh, surrendered, even for policies that are not supposed to expire sold to 65-year-olds. So the main question is, why do so many people lapse? And so that's what we wanted to study. And uh, we ran two surveys with customers from a large U.S. life insurer, one of them with people who had just purchased a policy and one of them with people who had recently lapsed on their policy. And our goal here was to try to understand uh, what were people's motivations or their beliefs when they were buying and contrast with what actually happened. And then what we find is that uh, if you just look at people who buy these policies, about 60% uh, of the customers with the policies, with the type of policies that we're studying, they lapse. So these are term policies, but 92% of them believe that they will never lapse or have never considered even the possibility of lapsing. Only about 2.4% of the, of the customers thought that there was a significant chance of lapsing. And then we try to understand why did people lapse? And about 40% of the people who lapsed, they lapsed because they forgot to make a payment. And about 15% of the people who lapsed, lapsed because they wanted to cut back on the premium in response to some financial needs that they didn't take into consideration when they were buying. So that's about 55% of people. We had a little bit of a conservative classification. So there's, there's about 45% of people there that uh, lapse on other reasons or reasons that couldn't be easily classified on that. So we can explain about 55% of the lapses. When people are buying, the vast majority of people think they will not lapse, especially not because of financial needs. And a bit to my surprise, I would have thought that a lot more people would not think they would last because of divorce, but divorce actually seemed, seemed quite well calibrated. And then what we do in the paper is uh, other than, than study uh, empirically the, the surveys and, and other data is we present uh, models that try to understand these mechanisms that we find the data. So we study models of uh, people, companies interacting with people who forget to pay and companies interacting with people who don't fully take into consideration their future income needs. And uh, the main point of this model is to try to understand how these mechanisms may explain the policies that we observe in practice, and also to try to derive new comparative statics that we can go back and test in the data which we do. So for example, what, one of the new things that comes up that we wouldn't know otherwise if we hadn't written the models down 
is uh, how the lapse phase, which is how much you lose of the permanent policy in case you in case you surrender, is related to the to your group's ex-ante probability of lapsing. So in this case, the size of the death benefits, so people with smaller policy tend to lapse more, and the age of the person, so younger people tend to lapse more. And what the model predicts is that the lapse fee should increase in the ex-ante probability of lapsing. So people buying smaller policies or younger people would face higher lapse fees. You lose more of their of their prepaid premiums of their in case they lapse, which uh, we find to be true in the data. And so these were things that uh, we didn't know before we started with we wrote down the model and something that comes out of the model. And the other thing that we that comes out of the model is uh, we. One thing that we observe in practice is that if you have a permanent policy and you need money, one thing you could do is you can borrow against your policy. So the company offers you to offers to give you some money at some interest, implicit interest rate. So it reduces from the death benefit, and the interest rate is a. Uh, pretty expensive, especially compared to other kinds of secured credit. So this is something that, you know, they have your policies, they have it's fully collateralized from, on their behalf. And uh, what we see from the model is that it turns out to be optimal for the company to offer some borrowing, because uh, these are people who have some smaller income shocks. And so those are not people who would have lapsed on their policies if they needed the money, but then they need the money enough to borrow at, at disadvantage uh, interest. So that's the other thing that came out of the model that we weren't expecting. Uh, great. Thanks for the summary. And the project is uh, joint work with a co-author, um, Ken Smetters. How did you two decide to work together on this project? So how did this collaboration come about? So a lot of my work has come out of just pretty random conversations with colleagues or with, based on courses that I have to teach. And uh, this project in particular, it was both. So Kent was my colleague uh, at uh, the Warden School of University of Pennsylvania. And we used to teach a course on risk management, which was a cross-listed course that was offered to undergrads, MBAs, and JDs, so people from the law school simultaneously. And so this was a course with three modules. So this was my first course that I taught after grad school. And I started teaching the first module, which covered more traditional econ of insurance topics like decision under uncertainty, how to measure risk, how risk sharing, moral hazard, versus selection. And he taught the last module, which was the finance side of, of insurance, so like why firms care about risk management, what kind of uh, instruments are that available for them to manage risk. And when I started, there was someone from the law school who would teach the second module. And the second module was uh, would cover a lot of institutional details about insurance market, like life insurance, property casualty, health insurance, pensions, etc. But after my first year, I was asked to teach the second module as well. So suddenly there I was as a theorist, two years out of grad school, having to teach a course about you know an actual industry uh, and where the students were several people who had already worked in that industry. And uh, I was pretty worried that the people in the class would know, would ask about institutional aspects that I didn't know about, or the law school students would ask about legal aspects of insurance I had no idea about. So I started studying about these industries myself and trying to read papers, not only written by economists, but especially texts written by industry-specific folk to try to understand more about this industry. And it was around the same time that Kent and I started working on, on life insurance. It's uh, also at the same time that I worked with uh, Olivia Mitchell on long-term care insurance. So these are uh, where projects started uh, at a time that I was trying to understand about these industries based on their course I was teaching. 
great. And so you already mentioned this a little bit, but how did you come up with the like, specific idea for this project? So it came out out of this course, but I guess like these labs-based insurance wasn't something covered in the course. So how did you like, nail down this topic? Yeah, I'm not entirely, I don't remember exactly the process. I do know that I was talking about life insurance uh, with Kent and how the policies were structured. And at the time I would teach in my class the model of insurance against reclassification risk. And we talked about some of the comparative statics you'd get from the model and how they didn't seem to fully account for the policies that we were teaching in practice. And so from there, we had the idea to write down a model that could account for these comparative statics using a mechanism that was based on narrow framing. So narrow framing is the idea that when we're thinking about investments, we don't totally take into account the other positions we face in our portfolio. So we evaluate each of them in isolation. And so it started as a theory paper motivated by some limited existing data. And then in the end, we ended up collecting a ton more data and we changed the model quite a lot, including the title. So you already said it started as a theory paper. At which point did you decide to also collect additional data and run these surveys? So this was partly based on ourselves. So the moment that our model started predicting new comparative statics, uh, we wanted to kind of differentiate from other potential explanations. And this was partly driven by referee requests. And so it was a mixture of these two. And over time, I think the paper improved a lot by moving into a more applied uh, setting. And so you already mentioned you got kind of referee requests for data and this partly drove this paper to be like a combined theory empirical paper. But of course, there's also always the option to just like write a pure theory paper and then write a separate empirical paper and kind of make two papers that are closely related of the project. So why did you decide on having like one combined paper and what do you think are the advantages or disadvantages compared to two separate projects? That's a good question. And I don't entirely know the answer of when it's better to do one versus the other. In my view here, I think there was enough complementarity in that I think people only cared about the model if you convinced them that the model was interesting enough to explaining an actual real phenomenon. And so most people wouldn't care about the model for its in itself. The interest in the model was very much related to what can this model explain. And so we needed to try to understand something real as well. In my opinion, the move, so this, as I mentioned, is something that started as a theory. And I think it's part of also what I've learned over time. It's like the move from, you know, an applied theory setting where we're trying to convince the readers that our assumptions make sense to a more applied setting where, you know, I don't particularly care about what the right assumptions are. I just want to understand the real phenomenon was to me very liberating, right? Instead of stepping in a seminar room, trying to explain to you why I think this model is interesting. I was just basically trying to understand why people lapse and why policies are the way they are. I was not married to to any particular mechanism and I didn't really have any, I didn't care about what the, what the, the mechanism was. I just wanted to know what the right mechanism was. And so to me, it was, I felt uh, liberated by that. It's just like, this is an interesting question. This is an important setup. And so I just want to know what the truth is. And so for me, I think it was great to have this uh, empirical part. And then the theory part, we want to understand, uh, it helps us come up with new comparative statics that I wouldn't have thought otherwise and try to see whether the mechanisms can account for the policy we observe in practice. But I think Having the surveys, for me at least, was uh, added a lot to, the, to that paper. 
And uh, would you say that also in terms of like publication successes, so this combined pair was published very successfully. Did you, do you think you could have also achieved something similar with just like the project split in two parts or was it really necessary to like have this combined thing to convince referees? No, to be honest, no, I don't. I think if it was just a model, we wouldn't be able to publish that well. In fact, a little part of the history of this paper is we sent the, the theory with very little data to the re review economic studies and it got a, a reject and resubmit basically saying, look, as it is, it's not general interest enough. If you're able to have better data on the mechanisms, then we would consider it because then it would become more interesting. And so we spent a couple of years working, trying to find an insurance company that would partner with us to try to do the survey. And after being turned down by, by a few, we ended up being able to find this company that was very generous to, to work with us. And, and they carefully, like we talked to them a lot of times to design the surveys. And then we did a new set of surveys and they suggested some of the mechanisms that we weren't even aware of. And then once we got this, the, the results back, we thought, well, we could now resubmit to the restud, but why don't we try the American Economic Review now? I think the paper became uh, even better and uh, we tried the AER and it was exciting there. So we're very thankful for the, for the comments. I think the paper got a lot better through the process. And uh, yeah, it took a few more years to be published, but I think it improved the paper a lot. Uh, you already mentioned it took you a couple of years even to find an insurance to work with. So how did this process look like? Did you just kind of cold email people at insurance companies or how did you try to like find this partner? No, we didn't just send emails. We tried through connections uh, that we could have or some people we knew had. We tried through Limra, which is uh, coordinates with a bunch of life insurance companies. We tried through any connections we could have, and eventually one of them accepted. Okay, great. And they were they were interested in finding out about lapses as well. So, and we did work closely with their research group. So, the forgetting to make the to pay the premium, which is the main mechanism here. So it's 40% uh, of all lapses was something we were not even, we didn't think much of it. And someone in the research group said, why don't you add a question about this? I think it might be interesting. And in fact, one of the possible answers was, I wasn't even aware that my policy lapsed. And they said, you have to have that because otherwise people are going to get confused. You're going to get like a survey uh, about why they lapsed. Uh, you have to let them know that they lapsed first because some people don't even know. And uh, it turns out that this is a super important mechanism, but we wouldn't have thought of it if you weren't for the insurance company letting us know. Yeah, so that's also very fruitful cooperation. That's Always great. And the paper previously had a different title. So it was previously called Narrow Framing and Life Insurance. So why did you change the title or kind of which changes to the focus of the paper made it necessary to change the title? So that comes back to the point about not being, not having to defend any particular explanation and just trying to understand the industry. So the original model, we were very much trying to make the case that it was narrow framing. And it turns out that it's like, we just wanted to see what the data told us. And the data told us something that's not clearly narrow framing. So people forget 40% of people that lapsed are just because they forgot to make the payment. That doesn't sound like narrow framing to us. Then 15% of people who lapsed, they lapsed because they had some unexpected income shock that they weren't thinking of. So that could be interpreted in terms of narrow framing, right? So I can be buying life insurance. When I buy life insurance, 
I think of the risks that are more immediate to it, like uh, mortality, but I don't think that I might lose my job in five years or I might have to have some unexpected expense in 10 years or something like that. So that could be narrow framing, but that could be other things too. And so we didn't want to have to defend. I think if you start thinking about, so when we write uh, theory models or when you run an experiment in a control setting like a lab or even the field, that's great because we can isolate particular mechanisms. I can sort of hold everything constant and just change one thing and I can see how one mechanism affects things. When you go to naturally occurring data, like in most market settings, then you're likely to have multiple mechanisms simultaneously at play. And that's probably what happens in a lot of situations. That's what's happening here. And so we wanted to, instead of say, this is narrow framing, this is just forgetfulness, I want to say, well, out of the lapses, how much of it is, we wanted to quantify uh, how much of each mechanism was generating these lapses. And uh, I think this is all related to the change, to changing the the title of the paper. And you worked on this project for quite a long time. So the earliest working paper I could find was from 2012. And I guess you started even earlier than that. And we already talked a little bit about how the project evolved over time that you added the empirics part. But could you just walk us again a bit in a bit more detail about like what happened and what stage of time? So like how did this project evolve over time? This was a very long project indeed. So I think we started in 2011 and the first version that circulated was 2012 and the versions evolved. We, we had a basically a model with some summary statistics. And then from there, we added a ton of data. So we added policy data from CompuLife, so which is a quotation software that uh, life insurance brokers use. So that gives a pretty good description of the supply side. So what policies are there available, but doesn't tell you anything about the demand side. We had data from two large insurers on lapse fees that we added later. We added data from the HRS, the Health and Retirement Survey, which is a survey of Americans over the age of 65 to try to understand how lapses are related to health shocks. And those were all before the final version. And then finally, when we sent to the restud, we get, we had all that, but we didn't have the survey. For the surveys, we had to, that took a while. So just the surveys themselves probably took the first about two years to design and implement with, with their, their customers. And then we, we, it took a little bit more time. So then, um, yeah, so that, that all added to the, what is it like the 10 year, nine year period that this paper uh, took to be published. And did you at any point in time feel like, okay, I, I lost patience because this project needs to go out in the state that it is right now, especially since you started this, you said like quite soon after grad school and it finished after you got tenure, if I, if I remember correctly. So yeah. it wasn't ready in time for your tenure review. Were you stressed about that or? The benefit of hindsight, I don't think so. I think the paper got a lot better. I think if the paper had come out in the initial versions, it would have been just very marginal paper, the first version of the paper. I think for me, I mean, obviously, like no one likes to have to work on the same thing for, for 10 years. And after you're done, you're basically like, okay, I need a little bit of time away from life insurance. I've been working on this for too long. But on the other hand, I think for the readers, it's better because you don't get like a lot of partial improvements. And I, I do think the paper got a lot better. I do think overall for uh, researchers, it's not a great idea if you're expecting papers to take 10 years to be published. But I also think this is a pretty, it's a pretty extreme case. 
And uh, yeah, but I, I don't think I was uh, particularly stressed about this paper in part because I was working on other things at the same time. But it would have been better to live in a world where things get published in a faster pace. Yeah, and the end, the paper did get published and very well in the AR. And how did the review process there look like? Looks like when did you submit and how long did it take you to get from submission to a publication in the end? So I don't remember exactly. It took two rounds. It was pretty standard. We sent it there. We waited. I don't remember the exact number of months, but it's always about between six, around six months. Then we got... Uh, some referee reports asking about other things. Then we ran a new survey. So initially, the people at the life insurance company, they, the researchers there uh, claimed that people don't understand probabilities very well. So questions had to be binary, yes or no. And we followed their recommendation. And then, of course, the referees didn't. And so the referees wanted probabilistic answers. And they're right to some extent. Like, it's very hard to infer probabilistic statements from binary yes or no questions. So we redid everything with probabilistic in probabilistic ways. Then uh, we got lucky for us that uh, the company was happy to do that. We did the whole survey again with uh, probabilistic answers and then it was accepted. And so with, with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything that you would have done or any major thing that you would have done differently in this project or did it really like need to evolve the way that it did? I mean, it's very hard because uh, part of the process was learning. I do think for me, at least, I, over time, I became, and that counts both in applied uh, work like this one and in theory work, I became more, less concerned about whether people particularly care about the assumptions that I'm making or not. So I think one thing I learned with experience was, so here's something that I've spent the last few years or couple of years studying. I'm going to tell you some of the things I learned. And I find them interesting and I hope you find them interesting too. But if you don't like them, that's okay. And so I moved from uh, more of an ad advoc advocate uh, position to more of an impartial observer. Look, I, I spent some time exploring this, this uh, new territory here. I found some things that I think are pretty cool. Let me tell you the coolest things I found out. And that counts both for empirical work and for theory work. And I think the moment we, at least I, got away from trying to convince you that this is the right model of thinking about things to, hey, I found out some cool things and I want to show you. A, I became a lot less stressed when I'm presenting, right? Because uh, now I don't need to defend anything. I'm just showing you things that I found out and uh, hopefully you'll find them cool too, but I don't need to defend. And B, I think people are have become a lot more willing to listen to what I have to say because now they don't have to try to find out how am I tricking them? I'm not trying to trick anyone. I'm just trying to show you, you know, this is something that I thought it was cool enough to spend a few years studying. And so I'd like to show you some of it. And uh, I think this is something that for me, at least it had to be learned by experience. So this is not something that came supernaturally and it's not something that I would do in the beginning of my career. Uh, great. And to conclude the interview, I would uh, like to ask a few more general questions about you as a researcher. And to start with, It's related to what we talked about already. You said kind of you were, you were a theorist initially and kind of started off a theorist. And now this paper was like a combined theory empirical uh, paper. So would you still kind of consider yourself mainly a theorist or if not, how, how did you kind of involve, evolve to being also more interested in empirics? 
Yeah, I'm still a theorist. Like uh, I'm a theorist at heart. So even empirical work, I tend to try to relate it to mechanisms and to think about how that relates to what does it teach me about other things and how do I, even if I'm, so A, most of my papers are, are theory motivated or theory themselves. And B, even the ones that are not, I tend to interpret them in somewhat of a theoretical lens. Um, yeah, and so how does your daily work routine look like if you have one? It's hard to tell because it varies a bit. So if I were honest, my daily work routine involves showing up at my office, hoping I have time to work on research, then suddenly having to have some committee meeting or have to talk about something that I wasn't expecting. And then uh, maybe by 3 or 4 p.m., I finally have the time to do something that I thought I would be doing at, at 9 or finding out that like there's a paper to handle or a referee report to write or a letter recommendation to write. So that that is a little bit of an honest answer about the daily routine. So I'm not the most organized person in the world. And so I keep being surprised by things that I didn't realize I'd have to do on that day. But yeah. I mean, if, if you still manage to produce great research output with this routine, then yeah, it works, I think. And so with the benefit of the experience that you have, kind of what single piece of advice would you give to a researcher just start, starting out or maybe your younger self from 10 years ago when you started working on this project? So I don't know one single piece of advice. I think one thing that I did learn, as I mentioned before, was trying to be less married to the model and more of like, you know, this is something cool that I worked on for a while and I learned some new things and I would like to, to show you. The other thing that I think younger people, including myself in the past, uh, don't realize is that you don't have to tell everything that you learned and everything that you tried. Like most of the things we try are not as interesting as the other things. And if you try to explain everything, we kind of lose the audience. So especially with theory, we find a lot of small results and minor variations that are just relatively minor. And initially we want to tell people everything we learned. And I'm not sure exactly where that comes from. And I think it comes with, for me at least, it came with experience that I don't need to tell everything that I tried and every result that I prove. It's a lot better to present uh, one big result that people would take away than to present one big result and 10 small results because then people will not pay attention to the one big result you have. Okay, uh, great. Thanks for the advice. And uh, with that, I would like to conclude the interview. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jonas. It was a pleasure to be here. And thanks for the questions. Yeah, and uh, thanks also to our audience for listening and uh, tune in next time as well to Behavior Science Uncovered.